No Directions Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage is brought to you by Roll for Combat's new Fall of Plaguestone Pathfinder 2e actual play podcast. Featuring Stephen Glicker, Jason McDonald, Rob Tremarco, and No Directions own Lauren Sig and Vanessa Hoskins. Find it and other Pathfinder and Starfinder podcasts, interviews, and reviews at RollForCombat.com. No Direction presents our Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. We'd like to thank our seminar team, Lauren Sieg, James Ballad, Vanessa Hoskins, and me, Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Param. We'd also like to thank Peyton Smith from Paizo for helping getting this produced. This content and more great seminar coverage, as well as Pathfinder and Starfinder content, is available at NoDirectionPodcast.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the uh, introduction to Pathfinder 2nd Edition seminar. Welcome to Gen Con 2019! Woo! Get a little room noise going. Uh... I am uh, Jason Bowman. I'm the director of game design at Paizo, and uh, I'm going to allow the panel to introduce themselves before I, I start going over uh, kind of what we're going to be doing here today, and we'll just go straight down the, pa- the line here. Hi, I'm Liz Liddell. I'm the senior editor at Paizo, and I was a developer for the Pathfinder Core Rulebook. I'm Mark Seifter, designer at Paizo, and one of the creators of the Pathfinder 2nd Edition Core Rulebook. And I'm Logan Bonner. Uh, what Mark said, I'm also a designer and have worked and this GM screen, and this character, and this sheet, character pack. sheet pack, <laughs> and the condition cards, and, and the, the combat tracker, and the, oh boy! Uh, so uh, there's a, there's an awful lot of stuff that just dropped here today at uh, at Gen Con. We are really excited to kind of talk to all of you about it and give you a sense of uh, what Pathfinder Second Edition is all about. This is really kind of a very introductory seminar. So if you've heard us talk about uh, Pathfinder Second Edition in the past, you're probably going to hear us say some of the same things again. Uh, but uh, now that the game is finally fully out and in everyone's hands, or at least uh, they're working their way through massive lines right now uh, to get it in their hands, uh, you know, we can kind of talk more freely about everything that the game is. There's no more secrets. We can't hide anything. You, you, you have the books now. And even as they're in line... They could be on their phones on Archives yeah, of Nephesus. Yeah, that's Nephis. right. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, Archives of Nephesus has already gone up as well. That, yes. that went up uh, here today. So for those of you interested in checking out the uh, rules, uh, you can find them on the Archives of Nephesus for free. You can go take a look and see what the game's all about. That's pfrd.info. Oh, that's right. So, uh, you know, this is a journey that started over three years ago. I, I, I think the primary design started about three years ago. Uh, to be honest, we started talking about Pathfinder 2nd Edition like the day 1st Edition went to the printer. And not because we were like, yes, let's plan it, but it was just there are things that were left undone. There were things that we couldn't do in 1st Edition. 1st Edition uh, was tied very closely to 3.5. And because of that, there were things that didn't make sense at the time. It was too big of a change or too big of a shift. And to be frank, I, d- I just didn't have the time to, to do the sort of design work that we needed to do. So for, for Pathfinder 2nd Edition, I would say that about three years ago, we really started knuckling down and trying to figure out what this game was going to be, what it, what it needed to be. And uh, that, that journey took us up through a playtest uh, that was long and very challenging. Uh, you know, I think the, the playtest taught us a ridiculous number of things about the game we were, we were building, what was working, more importantly, what wasn't working. Uh, and, you know, we spent uh, basically all winter uh, all fall and winter and into into early spring. Uh, sorry, fran- editors. Yeah, fr- yeah, sorry, <laughs> editors. Uh, frantically trying to uh, make this game into the game we all want it to be. And I, I, I think we kind of did it. Uh, all of the early reviews and all the, all the folk uh, looking at it are, are really quite happy with yeah. what they're seeing. And, so and The, uh, the playtest itself, we structured kind of differently than our previous playtests. We did a bunch of surveys. We got a lot of really good data. And yeah. it was just very thorough. I think, I think the thing that we did differently there is that we were actually stress testing the system. In previous playtests, we release a class and we're like, hey, play the class and tell us what you think. Well, there's, no, there's so much variability there. Like, what did you play? Is your GM a softball? You know, like, I, what level are you playing at? None of those are, are variables I can control. All I can get is, yes, I like this. No, I don't like this. And, and that's useful. Certainly good information. But it's not the sort of information we knew we needed for a, for a second edition of Pathfinder. So Doomsday Dawn was there for us to stress test the system, to really push some of the mechanics. And we tried to make it as fun and engaging as possible, but ultimately it was still a stress test. Um, but that actually bore a lot of fruit and allowed us to really fine-tune the game. 
So uh, enough about that, though. Let's talk about what Pathfinder 2nd Edition is. Um, the, the big thing that we're trying to make sure everybody understands about, about Pathfinder 2nd Edition is that our, our primary design goals for this game was to make it easier for everyone to learn, faster for everyone to play, and keep what makes Pathfinder Pathfinder, which is the ability for you to tell your own stories, add the depth to your character that you want. The choices you make about your character define that character. They add abilities. They add things you can do. They make the, the decisions you make about your backstory add a robust level of kind of reality to your character. Uh, that, that's choices you make, and they have an impact on the table. Um, in, in, in all the years of Pathfinder, that's a thing that you know, our game is known for, is, is that you can imagine almost anything, and there's a way to make it in the rules. Um, but uh, you know, but before we go too far deep into that, uh, let's talk a little bit about how 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 the game uh, plays. Let's talk about uh, the proficiency system. That's such a key component yeah. actually, to the actually, whole system. Before we get to that, yeah. can we get a quick just like all the room? How many of you uh, have played Pathfinder First Edition? That is most of the room. Yeah, it's almost everybody. Most of the room. Nope. Um, how many of you played the playtest? That is about a third of the room. Right. Yeah. And uh, for those of you on Twitch, how many of you? We can't see you, but just raise your hands. All right. Yeah. yeah. Just okay. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I digitally know now. I, I don't. I have no idea how many people are even watching. Okay. That's uh, good to know. Uh, but it, but it is amazing to us how many people were like, "Yep, there's a play test. That's cool. I'm I'm busy. We're in the middle of you know Rise of the Rune Lords or something. We got time for that. Uh, and and we're just like, I'm sure it'll be good. Meanwhile, we're sweating bullets like, oh, uh, is that enough? Is that everybody? What do they think? Uh, but there's so many folks who just kind of were like, yep, I'll wait until the final comes out. Well, here we are. Uh, so I, I, there's a number of key concepts in second edition that are worth kind of exploring and talking a bit about. And uh, why don't we start out with, yeah, why don't we, I'll, I'll come back around. Why don't we start about uh, talking about the proficiency system? Logan, you want to you give it sure. the, that, a, that a shot? Uh, so the proficiency system is kind of the core of how you build most of your stats. So your attack bonus is going to use the proficiency system. Your skills are going to use the proficiency system. Your AC is going to use the proficiency system. Your saves are. Uh, if you played Pathfinder 1, you know that each of these kind of had its own progression for how you built your bonus. And we wanted something that was a little more clear cut, that made the numbers more comparable to each other, and that is going to give you kind of a more direct idea of how good you are at various things. So the proficiency system is broken down into untrained, trained, expert, master, and legendary. Those are kind of the, the five different um, uh, ranks of proficiency. And each of those is going to determine your bonus. So you can kind of say, well, I'm an expert in perception, but I'm only trained in reflex saves, for example. And that's going to tell you kind of the ballpark of your stats, as well as you know, your ability modifier going into them. So uh, untrained is just zero. So if I'm untrained in something, I'm not, I'm not adding anything to it. I'm just using my ability modifier. Uh, being trained adds your level plus two. And then each uh, rank above that is going to add another two to that. So expert is four plus your level, master is six plus your level, and legendary is eight plus your level. Uh, so that means that kind of as you're going up in level, each time you're increasing your proficiency rank, that's a plus two, which is uh, in the, the math of the game, is a pretty big boost. So you're really going to feel that when you increase something. So for example, uh, every two levels, you get a skill increase, which is going to increase one of your skills by two. And so you really like, I, I just got significantly better at that skill each time you get one of those pieces. Plus adding your level to it, so you're kind of getting a little better at everything you're trained in as you go up. But if you go from trained to expert, you're going up by three instead of by one. So I, I think the, 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 the key takeaway there is that it's one formula. It's one thing you need to learn. And once you do, you understand how the core engine works across the game. Right, so oh, I'm a master at reflex saves. Okay, that means you're you're level plus plus six. Oh, I'm a, I'm an expert at stealth. Oh, level plus four. Oh, I'm only trained at using the longsword. All right, level plus two. I'm untrained at wearing heavy armor, but I'm forced to wear it so that we can sneak into this place. Yeah, you had nothing to your AC. Um, so uh, you know that that system is there to be like, yeah, we teach you a formula once. Uh, uh, first edition had formulas all over the place, uh, and they certainly served a very good function, but they were all basically trying to do the same thing, which is tell you how good are you at this thing. 
So coming up with a unified system allows everyone to understand that at a glance without having to dig through, you know, countless tables and parse out, you know, some of those formulas were like, you know, half your half, half your, your level, level plus, plus two, two yeah. versus a third but versus, versus a third. three quarters. And, and it also means you can compare some of the statistics to each other more often. Like if you were trying to compare somebody's bluff bonus in first edition, which would be deception now, versus another person's will save. Those were two different the, scales. Will save was either it, it one third sense, or yeah. two plus a half, whereas bluff was full level plus three extra for training yeah. skill. That was just they were never gonna work. They were gonna yeah. you were gonna just succeed every time. Uh, now we use deception versus um Perception. Uh, so I should have probably said intimidation versus well or sure. or diplomacy, uh, but but it allows us to do those sorts of direct things. So we didn't need combat maneuver defense anymore. We could just do a trip attack against your reflex DC. Yeah. So, so take you your reflex at ten, yeah. and yep. it's a skill check. And and those number systems now play with each other. Yeah. That allows us to make the game quicker to play. It's yeah. easier and, to understand. And the proficiency also kind of expands out into the other parts of the game. So, for example, we have skill feats. You're going to get a certain number of uh, of your feats that are dedicated just to getting better at your skills, and those are kind of gated by your proficiency. So if I'm an expert in crafting, I can take better crafting feats than if I'm just trained in it and master gets better ones and so on. So before we get too far off in the reads, uh, Liz, do you want to talk a bit about the modes of play? Oh, because sure. that, is a, that is a big thing in the book now. Yeah, so in, in Pathfinder 1st Edition, um, we sort of, you had this idea where sometimes you were in a combat encounter, you'd roll initiative and, and play, and then um, outside of that, you just weren't. And uh, we have codified that with the 2nd Edition to have three modes of play that really represent sort of how your characters are interacting with the game world and how much risk they're at at any given time. It also sort of sets the time scale. So the one we're all familiar with is encounter mode. Um, that's where you roll initiative, things work in rounds, you're using your actions on your turn. When you're not in encounter mode, you're in exploration mode. You're wandering through a city and talking to people. You're exploring the dungeon, but you're not fighting anything yet. Um, you're traveling across the countryside. When you're not adventuring at all, you enter the third mode of play. That's downtime. Um, this is when you're, you're resting, you're crafting, you're recovering from that illness that you picked up on your last adventure. Um, you're working your day job. Um, you're doing all those things that you're doing while you don't adventure. So there's components that come into play regardless of what's happening um, in the in-game time based on which mode of play you're in. And you swim back and forth between them as yeah. the story demands it. Yeah, and you find in play, like, it's going to play a lot, kind of the same way as first edition and a lot of other games. Like, you are, it's pretty flexible. You don't kind of say, all right, we're going into exploration mode now. But it's like, not a the flag GM. you put on the table. <laughs> right. That's like, oh, we're in right. exploration turn, mode, everyone. Turn, Hold turn on. Turn the wheel. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the screen doesn't like blur out and then yeah. everyone gets replaced and then suddenly it's music starts playing yeah. for an encounter. Right. If we could make that happen, we would, but we can't. <laughs> uh, but no, it is, it is a very fluid thing, right? And, and the only reason we gave names to it is so that we could more succinctly build rules, right? So, um, and, and a lot of those rules just speak to how the various types of play interact with each other. Right, so what you are doing while you are exploring the dungeon will impact how you enter combat when the door breaks down and there's a troll on the other side. Right, so if you're like, oh, I was sneaking away from the party, well, that now has rules that mean something. It's not just up to the GM to be like, I don't know, I, I guess you're hiding, maybe. Uh, right now, it now it, that's actually part of the game. It says, oh no, you get to roll stealth for initiative instead of perception because you were trying to hide. And if you roll high enough, you start the combat hidden. You, you get that as a perk before the combat even begins. So there was never a chance that the troll could see you or know that you were there. You're automatically behind the crates because you, you, you are probably pretty good at stealth if you're actually doing that. And that makes that more impactful, more meaningful. What you are saying you are doing actually means something. And it's more likely you'll succeed overall because in first edition you would have had to roll the stealth and then roll initiative, and if you've messed up on either one of those, you yeah. could have messed up here. If you roll high on that first one, you're also going first. Yeah. And, and something Jason dropped there that if you didn't play the playtest, you might not know, is generally you roll perception for initiative now. We don't have a separate initiative stat. Instead, we kind of say, 
however you're approaching the combat, as Jason said, you know, is what you're going to roll. And by default, it's perception in most cases because it's about your awareness of, you know, incoming threats. Yeah, did you see the troll when it burst through the door or were you busy staring at your own shoes? I mean, it happens, right? Every adventure is like, is my shoe tied? Oh my God, we're being murdered. Sometimes, <laughs> um, sometimes your shoe attacks you and you actually can... That's what you get for putting on mimic boots. Yeah. All right. Use uh, your cobbler skill for initiative. That's right. <laughs> you put your foot directly in its mouth. That's right. Yeah, no. I mean, you're basically feeding it. All right. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that, that kind of forms some of the basics of the game. But, but let's get into the meat. The, the meat, which is combat. I mean, let's be honest. You're, you're playing a bunch of murder hobos. So, um, you know, you're, you're going in the dungeon. You're going to end up in fights. You're going to draw your, your weapons, and you're going to go fight some people. And this is one of the areas of the game that we, we spent a lot of time refining. This was It's such a critical part of the game. It's that, that moment between life and death for your characters that we really wanted to make sure was as smooth and fun of a process as possible. Um, and that starts um, with... There, there's two things in here that I think are definitely worth explaining. One is talking about the action system, and the other one's talking about how crits and all of that plays oh, yeah. together. So, uh, uh, Mark, why don't you start off by, uh, why don't you talk to us about how the action system works? All right. So, once you have gotten into an encounter, and you'll do that by rolling an initiative roll based, like we said before, on what you were doing, uh, you have your turn order for everybody in the combat. So, you go turn by turn, and on the person's turn, they, um, as soon as your turn happens, you get one reaction and three actions. Plus, if the GM decides you were aware of what was going on, even though you didn't go first, you might have a reaction before your first turn. With that one reaction and three actions, that determines what you can do during your turn. Each of your actions can be spent to basically take any action. You don't have standard actions and move actions and swift actions. Certain activities that are really complicated, like casting a fireball, might take more than one of your actions. Or a trample monster ability could take three because they're running all around the battlefield trampling everybody. Um, with your reaction, you can use that anytime, even off your own turn. Because of that, they always have a trigger that tells you, okay, this is when this is going to happen. So, for instance, attack of opportunity is a reaction with a trigger that's based on somebody doing something that might drop their guard, like moving around right near you or like pulling something out of their pouch. Um, well, certain types of actions trigger the attack of opportunity. When the trigger happens, you can, but don't have to, choose to use your reaction. And then it's used up until your next turn. There is also a free action, which some of them can be used on your turn, like your three actions. Um, and then in that case, you use them in order. Some of them can be used off your turn. They will have a trigger, and you can use them like a reaction, but doesn't take your reaction. At the end of your turn, if you have any actions left and for some reason you refuse to use them, they're gone. And you'll get them back on your next turn. So that's just, that's it. There's not any complex combination. There's not like, oh, but there's some kinds of actions that take until the next turn to complete. Or this action uses up two of the other types of action. It's just actions. So I think there's an element to this that, that is is easy to get lost, but... You know, it comes to your turn, you get three actions. Most of the things you do in combat are one action. Mm -hmm. Drawing a sword, making an attack, moving, opening a door, closing a door, sitting down, falling up in the corner and crying. Stepping carefully these, five feet away from your foe. Yeah, exactly. All yeah. of these are, are, just, are just one action. And these form kind of the core basic actions of the game. These are actions that everybody gets. They're, they're one of the, the, the things you need to learn when you first start playing because everybody has these actions, right? Moving around, making attacks, basic stuff. And then all of your characters will add special actions that only you can do to your mix. So, but those are based off the choices you make. So you don't have to learn all of the things a fighter can do if you're not playing a fighter. Those aren't relevant to how your character works. Now, you might want to know them anyway because it's fun, exciting stuff. But fundamentally, you just need to learn the cool tricks and abilities that your character gets. So you learn the core, and that includes the proficiency system, the three action system, and then your character modifies and adds to that based on what you want to play. So at, at, at its heart, we tried to make a, a core game experience that, you know, I can explain to you in, you know, we're 19 minutes into this panel, and you are already most of the way there to understanding how the game plays. Um, 
And to kind of give you a, a point of comparison, like say I'm a first level fighter in Pathfinder First Edition versus a first level fighter in Pathfinder Second Edition. Yeah. Uh, if I'm that first level fighter, I can move up to my speed and I can attack. Um, and that's that's kind of my options. In first, in first edition. edition. In yeah. first edition. In second edition, I can move up to my speed and attack twice. I can move up to double my speed and attack once without having to take any kind of special action to do so. Um, I can pull out a weapon and attack twice. Like Because it's so flexible, there are just a whole bunch of different ways you can build it. And that becomes kind of even more pronounced as you go up in levels. Because in first edition, once you start getting multiple attacks per round, then it's like, well, I can stand here and attack multiple times and maybe move five feet. Whereas if you're playing that same character in second edition, I can move up to my speed and attack twice, you know, still. I probably have some special actions that might let me, you know, take a swipe at multiple people who are near me with, uh, with a couple actions and then still attack one more time. Um, or, you know, I can take a five-foot step and attack and take another five-foot step. You just, it introduces a lot more flexibility into the system. And um, it, especially for martial characters means they play a lot more loosely and, and well, a lot and, of different strategies. And the, the goal there is to give you kind of a, a rich tablet of tactical options based on the situation at the table, right? And, and that depends and varies wildly based on your character, right? The fighter's going to have a whole bunch of actions that allow them to take advantage of where people are located and being next to people and making additional attacks and, and, and kind of exploiting character weaknesses with weapon attacks and stuff like that. The, the wizard doesn't have any feats like that. No, the, the wizard has feats that allow them to expand and alter their spells via metamagic. That's, that's their choices. That's how they get more out of the game, is that they, they have abilities that allow them to make more out of their magic. Um, so all of, these, all of these class choices all end up being different. They all play with the same chassis of basic abilities, and then they bolt on all of the things that your character is specifically good at, so that when it's your turn to go, you're not doing the same thing as everybody else at the table. You know, you're doing what makes your character special. Yeah, like that first level fighter, if they took the sudden charge feat, they could spend two actions to move double their speed and make an attack. Yeah. So they basically get one free move because they have the ability to charge up and attack. That's what they're good at, running up and getting into the fight. Um, so there's another element to this that's, that's worth noting, and that's uh, how critical success and critical failure works in the game. This is another thing that's universally kind of applied to the game. And the way it works is uh, uh, whenever you beat the DC, you succeed. Whenever you fail the DC, you, you fail. Um, but if you exceed the DC by 10 or more, it's a critical success. If you fail the DC by 10 or more, it's a critical failure. Now, a lot of things don't necessarily do something super special on a critical success or a critical failure, but many things do. Attack rolls, for example, don't have a critical failure effect, generally. But... <laughs> there are some monsters that are like, if you make a critical failure on an attack roll against me, I rip your weapon out of your hand or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, as a general rule, those things don't apply. So, you know, swing to your heart's content. Um, but critical successes, uh, those, there's a lot of effects there. Generally speaking, double damage or an additional uh, bonus, depending on the weapon you're using, things like that. Whenever you roll a 20, you still figure out whether or not it's a critical failure, a failure, a success, or a critical success but then you bump it up by one category. So uh, let's say you're a, you're a peasant and you're attacking a dragon and the dragon has an armor class of 40 and you have an attack bonus of three and you roll a 20 and you're like, yeah! And the GM's like, well, that's still a critical failure because it's a 23 against a 40, so you're still 10 below my AC. But don't worry, you rolled a 20, so instead of a critical failure, it's just a failure. <laughs> oh, the peasants go home and they hire adventurers. That's what happens. So, uh, you know, uh, things like that really allow us to expand out what spells can do in the game, what attacks can do in the game, because we've got... Not just you succeeded and you failed, but you really succeeded or you really failed. This really allowed us to do some things with spells um, that allowed spells to kind of keep some of their classic themes, but not be the automatic like, yep, this is the best spell to cast of third level because you're paralyzed now and if you, if, even if you fail the save, that's it. Um, so you might have something like paralysis on a failure lasts for a little bit. Yeah. And on a critical failure, then it really lasts for a long time. So, like, you're still going to get that effect out of it because they failed, but you won't necessarily end the combat forever um, by them failing one single save. And very importantly, on the flip side, 
because it was those saver dies that you guys told us for years were causing problems because it either it was not fun because the fight was over or it was not fun because your wizard just frustratingly did nothing so on the flip side if they succeed against your paralysis they lose still lose one of their actions on their next turn they get slowed for a lot of monsters they have a routine that you can pretty significantly disrupt it by taking one of the actions away they need a critical success in order to completely avoid the effects so this has a really interesting end effect on the game that isn't immediately obvious but you all learn it soon enough now that it's out out in everyone's hands it means that as you go up and level fighting monsters that are significantly lower your lower than your level they're still interesting challenges because their first attack can still generally kind of hit you if they roll well um, you know, and they, they can still be a part of the game. But when you turn the tables on them, that ogre that beat you up when you were first level, now that you're seventh level, you know, almost every attack you make against it is going to be a crit. And you can just wipe ogres off the board, which makes them, they, their role changes in the game as you go along. So um, it, it really does help enforce the, the idea that you become a more powerful hero, that you're advancing in your skills and abilities. And, uh, Obviously, the flip side of this is also true. If you're facing a monster that's significantly higher level than you, you're in trouble. <laughs> Run. That's not good. Uh, you know, fighting, fighting against, you know, uh, uh, you know, level 15 dragon or something when you're level 10 is really not a good idea. Uh, that, that, that dragon is going to tear you limb from limb. It's going to crit you constantly, uh, and that's going to deal double damage, and it's really going to hurt you really, really quite quickly. Um, so that that's one of the reasons why we're, we're we're pretty careful in the new game about handing out bonuses and stuff because it doesn't just affect whether or not you succeed or fail, it also starts pushing around the metrics of critical failure and critical success. Like Logan talked before about how a plus two is pretty significant. If you're sitting at a particular point that's around the halfway point on the D twenty, you needed like a ten to hit with your attack, and you get a plus two to that attack roll, that gives you thirty three percent more damage because of the fact that it gives you two more hits, and two more crits. So that's a lot for a plus two, and that's what it does. Um, and Jason also mentioned that, um, that criticals apply to everything. That's also true of like skills. Yeah. So like there are a whole bunch more things you can do with skills where if you roll really high, you're going to get you know additional information, and if you critically fail, you might get misinformation. There's a lot more kind of shades of, uh, of, uh, of interest in kind of how the skills work. Um, similarly, um, like uh, Jason mentioned earlier, you can use athletics to uh, do some of what used to be called combat maneuvers. So, like, uh, if you try to, uh, you know, knock somebody back, you're going to knock them back further if you critically succeed. And, and yeah, it allows kind of a deeper narrative connection to the dice rolls. It's it's no longer just oh I succeeded or I failed. It's not binary. It it now has more variety to it, which allows the story to be kind of bigger when the dice really go your way or you're you know fighting something way above or way below your level it, it's it's more there's more there and now. To, to be fair like pathfinder first edition had a fair number of these especially in skills where it was like well you fell by five or more the trap goes off yeah um so i mean we got the idea from the fact that those were very successful in pathfinder first edition although we kind of felt that five was a little bit of a small window for it not going off and ten Kind of works for us a little better, but um, it also just makes the math so much easier. It's yes. so easy to calculate, and it does some interesting yeah. effects and, on and the it's die. A, it's a really handy tool for the GM too, because when you're just making something up on the fly, you can just kind of be like, okay, I have a rough idea of what they'll figure out, and then you can be like, oh, well, that's a critical success, and I can give them a little more. It's something that's really easy to kind of just improvise. Mm -hmm. So I, I do want to open it up to questions here in just a bit, but before we do, I, I want to kind of give everyone here at the table a chance to just talk about their favorite thing in the, in the game. Um, and uh, I'll start... That we didn't already talk about. Yeah, no, that you didn't already talk about. Uh, and, and, and whoever has their, uh, an idea first can go first. Well, Liz, go ahead. Um, I'm going to speak a little bit to the next panel, but um, the thing I like most about this game is that it has a very clear and simple character creation process. Um, so we have a, uh, a whole section of the of the book that's dedicated to creating a character that walks you through step by step. It is simple. It is easy. Um, you don't need to hold the hands of newer players. Um, it, so it really just plays into this whole aspect of the game being really easy to learn and very fast to play, um, even for someone who's not necessarily familiar with RPGs. And it kind of walks you through the life of your character, so narratively it's really satisfying. Too. Yeah. You learn more about who your character is and not just what your character's numbers are. 
and and this was part of the book that um, I I personally took a very deep deep interest in. Uh, but but Liz, your your assistance on this, your your guidance and your feedback was invaluable. That's because in I care a lot about it. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, in making this this part of the book uh, amazing. Chapter one. Uh, is kind of the key, right? It's you know, it's the intro to the game. We teach you about the game and we tell you how to make a character. And if that end bit isn't smooth and clean about here's how you build your character, you know, why why you're not going to play the game because without a character, that's that's pretty hard to do. So um, you know, we really worked very hard to make sure that that chapter one was as clean and smooth as possible. And uh, yeah, it, it was a lot of work, but it it it, it really plays out well. So. Uh, since I have the best area sitting right in front of me, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite things, which is kind of how we've revamped monsters. Um, so in Pathfinder 1, if you had made your own monster, we kind of said, here's the process for making a monster. Um, but it would be, it was really easy to just get a monster that didn't really work um, because you're kind of building it like a character and that doesn't always work for monsters. So, you know, internally we had all the tricks. It's like, oh, well, we have to give this a plus eight natural armor bonus to AC to make its AC not terrible. Um, for second edition, we kind of flipped that and said, well, we're going to do top-down. So whatever you need the monster to be, that's where you start. And so you're kind of starting with monster benchmarks and building your monster much more quickly and having it do what you really want it to do. Uh, we also, and you'll see this in the best theory, put a lot more effort into giving monsters unique abilities um, that kind of make sure that they get the right effect in combat that we want. And part of the thing that helps us with this is the action economy. So we can kind of say, well, we want it to be able to do this fairly quickly so we can make that a, a one action thing. So it's still costing it some of its turn, but it can do it without kind of eating its entire turn to, if we made it a standard action. Could I build on that for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Um, along with that breakdown of, of making the building monsters shorter, we've also made the stat blocks a lot shorter and a lot easier to use at a glance. And mm -hmm. you also, you don't have to pick like, here are all the monster's feats. It is, has this many hit dice, it has to have five feats. It's just kind of like, well, what should the monster have? That's what the monster has. It can do things thematic for itself, and you don't wind up with, say, an owlbear that is the same thing but worse than a tiger, which I discovered when we were going through it for second edition. I was like, I played all first edition. I never realized that the owlbear was just a tiger that didn't have bounce. I know the owlbear oh. has some of Jason's favorite, uh, favorite little <laughs> abilities in there. I uh, so I I uh, when it when it came time to write some of the monsters for second edition, I kind of went through the book and cherry picked some of the ones that I'm like I want that one and that one and that one because uh, they're monsters that I I grew up as you know loving as a kid and the, the Albert was on that list, the Minotaur was on that list. I mean Bullman, uh, and uh, you know things like skeletons and zombies and things like that uh, have some of my my. And and it's throughout the best area. It's not just the things that I wrote, by by no means. The best area is filled with awesome, iconic things for every monster. And and what we were really trying to go for was when the monster showed up and did that terrible thing to you, you would go, oh, yeah, I should have seen that coming. Yeah, no, that, that perfectly makes sense. So when the owlbear knocks you down and starts just gutting you to feed to its young like regurgitate your organs to its <laughs> um, you go oh yeah i should have really expected that i mean that's that is that is what owls and bears do uh and uh you know or like when the when the when the skeleton uh you know spends its reaction and collapses into a pile of bones and you're like haha we defeated it and then on its next turn it puts itself back together you're like oh i should have seen that coming um you know that that's kind of some of the fun stuff that that's hiding mm -hmm. in the best area it's it's filled with filled with great stuff I think I came up with something because the four degrees of success are mine. I was thinking of monsters. Let's do multi-classing by archetypes. So in Pathfinder First Edition, I built a lot of characters and I made character build guides like the Rogue Eidolon's Guide, Subfighter, and Rogue. And there are a lot of things I always wanted to build but that I just could never bring myself to build because it was just very bad to build that character in Pathfinder First Edition and it usually involved multi-classing combinations I wanted to play, but it's like the system punishes you heavily and then maybe there's a prestige class to patch it. Um, and I feel like multi-classing via archetypes where you always progress your main class no matter what you do, and then you can take the parts that you want from the other classes to the extent that you want is something that just opens up so many character combination concepts to me. Like. I would never have been able to do something that just mixed and matched multiple 
martial characters and casting characters. Like, imagine trying to play a, a Fighter 10, Wizard 10 without Eldritch Knight. Um, and Don't so, do it. <laughs> um, but like in, in the new game, you could make a character that like multi-class monk and bard, and that's actually pretty cool because Flurry of Blows is a single action to take two attacks. So you've got actions to spare to do a performance pretty easily. And I'm going to inspire myself to yeah, be courageous. Right? <laughs> exactly. And you could do that. And hey, you know what? If you had I um, did something else to get a mount, um, you could spend the last action, one action to have the mount move up to twice its speed, one action to punch twice, <laughs> Um, and then one action to inspire. So, or, so, so there's a lot of cool combinations you can do with multi-classing. So what you're saying is that if you're going to make a monk bard, you're going to be going to a lot of poetry slams? Oh. Yeah, I think so. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. It had to be done. Yeah. no, yeah, right, Jason, I, it's up to you. All right. Uh, the, and uh, one of the things with multi-classing uh, using archetypes is the proficiency system really helps with that because you don't have kind of the weird progressions you could get in first edition where it's like, well, these stats are kind of weird, but I guess I'll live with it. My, my of... will save modifier, base will save modifier is now plus 20 because I multi-class 10 times into will classes and I have right. plus zero on reflex at level 10. <laughs> so uh, I'm in love with so much of this game, uh, but uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the answer that that you're not going to expect, which is I, I, I love all the stuff that didn't change. I love that it's still, at its heart, the same game that it was when first edition dropped 10 years ago. Uh, you still in, dream up your own stories. You still invent your own characters. You still bring those to the table, and you still go on crazy epic adventures with your friends and tell stories together. That's what Pathfinder is. It, it's, it's a tool for you to have fun with your friends and share a story together. And that didn't change. That, that, that's the first rule in, in Pathfinder 1st Edition and the first rule in Pathfinder 2nd Edition is this game is yours. Use it to tell the stories you want to tell. Use it to share moments of happiness or sorrow. Use it to have a laugh. Use it to uh, explore what it means to be somebody else. That's what's special. That's what I love about this game. And second edition, everything we did was in service to that. And I hope you all really enjoy it. So why don't we open it up to some questions? Uh, we'll, we'll start with folks here. I think what we'll need is for folks to queue up uh, at the mic. And every couple, where we'll take one from Twitch. So uh, feel free to uh, go right ahead. I should note, if you talk into that mic, you will be broadcast onto Twitch. So understand, uh, let's try and keep it PG-13. Where, where do I click I agree? Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. All right. So uh, mine's actually kind of a two-part question, but it, it, it kind of centers around the same general uh, uh, thing that I'm, uh, I'm dealing with here. I run a game. It's um, uh, three women and a guy uh, as my players, and... Um, we were discussing uh, Second Ed, and I liked some of the stuff I, I saw in the playtest, wasn't so sure about some of it, but it sounds like you guys have done some really amazing stuff. Uh, but this was the promise I made to them. I turned to one of my players and I said, we can remake your Oread Arcanist who rules a kingdom and leads armies, and by the way, my whole party is mythic. When we, when we can recreate this in Pathfinder 2, we're going to make the switch to Pathfinder 2. So here are a couple, here are my two questions. First off, I'm really excited by this idea of multi-classing by way of archetype, because this sounds like an awful lot of the stuff, like the hybrid classes or the arcanist or something like this might be recreated through that rather than through a whole new class that I have to wait for a book to come out in like six years or something like that. So I'm, I'm wondering if that's what you're shooting for. Are you going to be replacing the hybrid classes uh, that we have in first ed with this concept. So we haven't made any firm decisions on what we're doing with with any of those particular classes necessarily, but you certainly can emulate a lot of the hybrid classes mm -hmm. in a way that you never could until we built the hybrid classes in, A in ACG in first edition. Right. So 
whether or not we eventually make any one particular um, hybrid class of the class later on, there's a lot that you can do right now. And even for the Arcanist, honestly, some of its concepts You can are, make it pretty close with the wizard. Yeah, some of its concepts have been taken in, into the wizard of being able to like switch out your spells every mm. once in a yeah. while. Or you, you have an theses. arcane thesis, yeah, and that's going to give you some kind of special ability. And one of the theses is like, oh, I, I'm not satisfied with just being able to prevent my spells once I can... Right, and there's okay. feats for the wizard that are kind of similar to exploits, where you do weird things like switch the spell, like, well, oh, my resist energy is cold, I mean, not fire in the middle of the spell, or things like that. So um, you might be able to get that with the wizard. Yeah, and I, I think it's going to depend a lot on the hybrid class. I think there are some hybrid classes, like, I would say, like, the, the Slayer, where it's like, we don't know if there's really enough gas there to give it its own class unless we come up with something new for it. But there were some existing ones uh, that I think... Had their own like very unique niche that sure. is going to be enough for a full class. Because okay. the Slayer, like the Ranger, does most of what the Slayer did, and with multi-class rogue, you kind of do all of what the Slayer did. So one thing I want to know uh, before we move on to the next question is, I, I'm not sure if it's up just yet. I'm just was trying to check on our website. There's a conversion guide that's going up uh, very very soon. Now what this isn't going to do is tell you exactly how to make you know, every class from first edition. But what it does include is some advice on what you could build using the pieces in the core rulebook to get something close. Okay. And most of the classes, you can get kind of close. I would say there's six or seven from first edition that are like, yeah, I don't have rules tech for you yet, Summoner. I'm sorry. <laughs> we just haven't built that the pieces for that yet. Uh, there are ways you could do it, but you're going to be a little far off. I think Arcanist is actually one of the simpler ones. To be to be honest, uh, you did also mention mythic. Uh, yeah, so I, I, you mythic know, we, and kingdom yeah. ruling, and uh, I, some I'm of that. Happy about the downtime rules that so, she mentioned, but I, th I think some of that's going to come over time. Okay, uh, I think some of it you can probably use very similar systems from first edition, and it's. I not was going wondering to be about that. Like, there's so, not much cross no. between like yeah. what's on your character sheet and what's in the kingdom rules. So, no. how much of the kingdom rules you could can I probably like, kitbash it pretty easy at least yeah. here to get you going. Every right. okay. subsystem that I've tried to use when I've converted APs has worked fine without really any conversion except if there were DCs to change the numbers of this. Uh, and you're also going to be able to, uh, with the kind of downtime actions, will give you a really clear framework for doing something like kingdom building. And mm -hmm. one of the Ashes, Age of Ashes AP volumes is going to have something that's not quite kingdom building, but if Same you look way. at it, you'll be like, oh, I, I can figure out how to... Well, and, and the Kingmaker and, Kickstarter. And the Kingmaker right. rules yes. are going to be out next year. Yeah. All right. Oh, okay. Thank, thank right you very on. much. Cool, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> thank you. I love giving you guys my money. So. Yeah. We like taking it. <laughs> So I have a player who, from first edition Pathfinder 3.5, that was his favorite uh, things, 3.5 specifically, but he is the type of player that I'll take two levels of this, I'll take one level of this, I like sure. this ability, blah, uh -huh. blah, blah, blah. So when I saw the game. character creation for Pathfinder 2nd edition, where did you get your inspiration to make characters so modular? Because it was just like a message sent from heaven. It was like, this is exactly what he does. He only likes this ability from this class. So he'll take I, just enough. I think, I think one of the big things that we really tried to do was to make sure that uh, at every time you gained a level, you got to make a meaningful choice about your character. And, and a lot of the design space flew, f flowed from that kind of basic concept. And and so, you know, early on we, we started realizing that there were a whole bunch of different metrics in the game that were all trying to kind of in some respect do the same thing. Like you had rogue talents or barbarian rage powers and, and all these sorts of things floating around and they were all on different systems and they all had different names. And we were like, you know what, let's just standardize. Let's try and find a way that the, all these things are speaking one language. That way that language is interchangeable. Right. And, and you acquire them the same way, but they don't do the same things. Yeah. It's, so still so your, your base acquisition method is the same from character mm -hmm. to character, but what you do with it and what you can make happen with it changes. So that, that's kind of where that all came from. And uh, yeah, I think it played yeah, out really I would well. Say I think some of the modularity of, uh, also comes from like, we saw how much people liked archetypes in first yeah. edition. So that was mm -hmm. a big inspiration. It was like, we know this is a really popular part of the game. How do we bring that forward? Are there ways we can make this work more smoothly with the rest of the system? Because it was kind of a bolt-on in first right. edition, which was like a really good bolt-on. But still, if you can go into the system with that in mind, it makes it a lot easier. And to... from my perspective, the modularity or working on modularity used a lot of my computer science background where we always learn about modular object-oriented design and how that makes it more extensible, easier for other people to build things. That's exactly what we want. We want it to be easier for you guys 
to make your rules to make your house rules without crumbling five other unassociated parts that you didn't realize. So I highly appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Why don't we take a question from Twitch? We have a question from Twitch. Um, it is how much of Pathfinder Second Edition was made with the intention uh, to help people switch over from one E to two E, whether they be experienced or new GMs. Um, I, I that that was a concern for us, right? I mean, we definitely wanted the the general goal is to make the game easier for everyone to learn. Pathfinder First Edition players are certainly counted in the group of everyone. Um, I think the thing that, that was a challenge there that we had to work with was we know that Pathfinder First Edition players have certain pieces of language stuck in their heads about what things mean. And if we change that too much when it comes to Second Edition, it just adds confusion for them. Whereas the new player actually has an easier time because they don't have that. Um, so I, I think that's kind of the, the big place where the challenge is. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that there's much more to be said than that. And considering how much time we have left, let's try and do these a little bit more rapid fire. So we'll just let one person answer and then we'll keep things going. Right. So um, It sounds like uh, the hybrid uh, class options are pretty potent. How did you make the, uh, say, the standardized uh, purebred classes uh, stack up to that level of customization? I can kind of talk to that, I guess. Um, so it comes back down to this um, idea of how in first edition, rogues had rogue talents, barbarians had rage powers. Um, every class has class feats that you choose as you go up in level. So you're, you're always adding these pieces onto your character. Um, and, and that's kind of that, that same piece of modularity where we wanted um, the classes to be customizable. We have these options of feats that let you make those choices for what your character does. And so we can just apply that across the board so that you're choosing them in the same way. They all have the same name, but they all do something different. So you're able to really, like, at every level, pick something new that is meaningful to your character. And the multi-class archetype is usually going to get a lower level feat than straight up class would. So, so yeah. multi-class three times, you, you, by that point, you're giving up like a really high-level class fit to do that. Yeah. I, it's just a balance game of like understanding that when, when, when we let you dip into other features and abilities, we have to make sure that those aren't overshadowing what the core of your character is. So you can only really trade out class feats or other things. You still keep your core, which allows that core to be kind of the signature of your character. Thank you. Right, thank you. Next. Uh, I'm new to Pathfinder from 5e, right. uh, so I wanted to know just how much of Galarian has changed from 1 to 2e, or if I could take stuff like the near Sea World Guide or Galarian Humans. So the big change there is uh, the uh, Galarian, uh, when, it was, when we first published all of the things, all of that was set in the year 4707. With, as of today, our year has sprung forward to 4719. So all of the adventure paths from first edition are now canon in the world. So the world itself has seen some pretty dramatic changes. Uh, I don't want to, well, I, I, it's not really spoilers anymore. This is where we live now, but like the world wound is closed and the rune lords are back and the whispering tyrant is free. So there's a lot of crazy things that happened, but a lot of the NPCs are still around. A lot of the nations are still around. Like, I mean, fundamentally, you're not, it's not like you're going to go, wow, I don't recognize this world at all. No, you're going to be like, wow, a lot of crazy adventures happened in this world in the past 12 years. I wonder what happens next. Most of the Inner Sea World Guide is still pretty, mm -hmm. pretty valid. Pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> the section on Last Wall, not so much. Uh, <laughs> oops. <laughs> all right, thank, thank you. You broke last wall. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Uh, I have uh, another question from All for Games on Twitch. Uh, are barbarians going to get their superstition rage power back? So uh, it, the, the superstition instinct for everybody here it was one of the instincts that was in the playtest, and we cut it very intentionally from the final version because the fan feedback was that some people really enjoyed it, but that it was actually very complicated. It wasn't a good one for the starting game because it involved you saying, I assume magic, I just don't like it, and you get a bunch of pretty powerful benefits in exchange for that, but that's a play style that's more advanced. So we would probably, if we put it back in, it was not going to be in the core book, or I guess that's over here. It would be in a later book after people have more time to learn the system, figure out what to do. Then they start doing, oh, yeah, no magic. Let's see yeah. how that goes. And I, I want to note, uh, on Saturday, we have a panel called uh, uh, Paizo 2019 and Beyond. Uh, that's the panel that you're going to want to come to if you want to hear about all of the new things happening in the next year. So we're, we're going to be a little coy about that. Don't until miss then. it. 
Yeah. Next. I love integrating sci-fi into my fantasy. Um, I loved it when the technology ad came out for the first edition. Uh, how well is the second edition going to integrate with, like, say, Starfinder and the information previously about you know, technology? Well, we haven't built guns yet, but I, I, I guarantee you it's on our list of things that needs to be built for the new system. Um, so, I, you know, like everything that we build, right, you know, uh, the, the, the upside to doing a second edition is you can look back at the last 10 years and go, let's make sure we leave room in the game engine for this to be a better part of the game. Uh, and some of those things we snap right to the core. Other things we go, yeah, we're going to leave room. We know what that's going to be or we have a good sense of what it can be. Let's leave the space for it and we'll build it when the time comes. And I think things like tech... Um, uh, can work in the new system perfectly well. We just we're just not there. Yeah, yet. there's nothing in the system yet. And I would also say like, uh, if slash when we do it, it's probably going to be you're going to get a bunch of tech stuff all at once. It's yeah. probably not going to be drips and drabs. It's going to be like here's yeah. here's, here's a bunch of tech. Here's guns. Yeah. All sooner. the guns. <laughs> Hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah. So. All right. Thank you. Right, we have we have time for just these two more. That's. Um, unfortunately, with the aggressive uh, timeline, I didn't get to do all the playtest. But sure. I noticed that there was a heavy uh, sci design science in the surveys. Um, was there anything in Agrit that you learned about Pathfinder players that were surprising? And then a second question is, going forward with future classes or whatever, is there going to be uh, rigorous survey design involved in those as well? I think one of the things we learned, and, and Mark will speak to like the specifics of the surveys, but I think one of the things we learned that was a bit surprising because most of the feedback we were getting was like from our message boards, was how positive people were overall when they're actually filling out a survey compared to like the loudest voices on, on the message boards um, versus other people who are like, I don't want to engage in this, right? But like uh, the feedback was really positive, even with like the things we knew we needed to change, overall people were pretty happy. So I'll go through... So my highlights quickly because we don't have much time. <laughs> so my number one highlight was discovering that Jason said earlier in this panel, everyone's murder hobos. And I always thought, oh, but I'm one of the few people, my groups, they just like to talk and we'll play it out. I think a lot of you probably are in the same situation because we discovered in the surveys for part four of Doomsday Dawn that whether you're an experienced group or new players, whether you liked the game or didn't, across all demographics, like 75% or more of groups tried to diplomacy, even with some Cyclops that you act, they said they did diplomacy, even with Cyclops that you had to make checks or they would just attack you right away. This wasn't with the Fae who were friendly to begin with. And so it was very surprising to me that actually we were in a big majority, uh, the people who like to try to role play a lot more in encounters. Uh, the other thing that I would say was very interesting was that um, it ties into what Jason said before in the panel, but a lot of people played the first adventure, liked it a lot, and just said, I'll wait for the book, we don't have time to keep going. <laughs> so we, what we dropped off was a huge number of people who rated things as very good. Not extremely good, necessarily. Um, those people tended to stick, like, oh my gosh, I just want to do the playtest. But this is a very good, let's, let's go. So I would say those are the two main things, and that we do plan on using... A more rigorous survey methodology after like I researched a bunch of survey methodology we now know what it is and we're gonna try to keep using it and to be clear he researched it before we put out those yeah surveys. I, I, I'm I, very I, happy with the structure I, of this. I think it's one small code on that the thing that I, I learned that I was very very happy to see was that the Pathfinder fan base uh, is skewing a lot younger and a lot more diverse than than I had thought um, and that's great that's fantastic so all right one last question here then we're gonna wrap it up yeah, so you, uh, Jason, mentioned in your last Canon game about uh, failing forward as a sort of design ethos. Yeah. And I would like to hear more about that and sort of what that means in general. So fail forward is an interesting concept in games. And basically what it means is there are some things in the game that you know the party's going to succeed at. They have to. Right. You're lost in the woods trying to get to the wizard's weird old tower that's somewhere in the middle. You're not going to sit there and be like, well, you rolled a failure three times, so I guess you go home, no adventure. Oh, well. Um, that, that's a situation where we would say there's a, there's, this is a fail forward. Even if you fail, you're still going to find the wizard tower, but now it comes at a cost. It doesn't mean that you can't fail. 
It, it just means that it will cost you time, maybe there's an extra fight, maybe there's something bad that happens. Like, oh, the only way to get there was through the thorn meadow, and now everybody <laughs> takes 3d4 damage before you walk up to the place. And that was your only way to get there, right? That, like, that is what that means as a, as a rule system, because the game sometimes puts you in a situation where it's like, okay, well, you got to climb this cliff, and we know you have to, so keep making checks until you do it. And that's not good gameplay. It's not that, fun. It's just right. repetitive gameplay. Yeah. And instead, we'd much rather be like, yeah, no, make the, uh, the athletics check. If you fail, you still get to the top, but you stumble and fall and scrape yourself up a couple times. Take 2d6 damage, and now you're up at the top. And Great. We We're want, done. We want to make this clear, because I know it's been debated online sometimes. This doesn't mean every check. No. Jason said, this is for the important ones. It doesn't mean at first level you can go to Abadar's vault <laughs> and yeah, say, it, oh yeah, my rogue is going to get through because it'll fail with the cost, so maybe Abadar's mad at me now, but I opened it anyway. No, you can't get into Abadar's vault. Go somewhere else. <laughs> all right. So there you go. I want to thank you all for coming. I've really enjoyed this seminar. Uh, thank you very much for attending. I hope you all have a great Gen Con 2019. Thank you for attending. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. Good. Yeah. Hey, everyone. I'm Pam here, and I'm here with Mark Seifter. He Hi, just everybody. saw on the panel, and it is fantastic. So, Mark, 2E is out. The yes. floor is packed. The hall is packed. The game room is packed. How is it being received? Well, so far, we've been looking at uh, a lot of the reception from the fans who are here and from reviews online, and it seems to be overwhelmingly positive so far. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm really uh, excited about some of the reception uh, of the playtest. It seems like for the majority, the, the feedback we're seeing is mostly positive. I know us of no direction. We've really liked now, have you discovered anything now that it's in the wild? Have you seen anything that surprised you here at Gen Con? Well, it's, I guess this is the first panel. Yeah. Um, and so I've only been on the Gen Con floor for 30 minutes. So I guess the thing that most surprised me was how few copies of Fall Plague Stone exist in the, <laughs> in the world and not in somebody's hands. Because we brought all of them that exist, and it was not many. And I'm sure by the time I get back from these panels, there will be none. Oh, gosh, a sellout. Yeah. Wow. So I guess that's the thing that surprised me. I know it's not really about the game, but really we only had enough time to like sign a few people's books and watch them go into lines. So everything that I've seen um, for the release has mostly been just media reviews, which were up like midnight last night, so we could just stay up super late and um, watch those. Now that it is in people's hands, people are here playing it, people are chatting about it, what's one thing you want them to know about 2nd Edition that maybe not has gotten a lot of attention? Okay, let's see. So I think that there are a lot of the aspects that I most want them to know about 2nd Edition are the things that we're only saying, like that it is easy to pick up mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have options it has a huge amount of depth so easy to learn but it takes almost forever to explore all of the depth that comes in with the game um something that they might not know I feel like we've said everything yeah, a lot of you times. Been, so like, I, really it's, pushing it, the message. it's hard to think of what they don't know at this point mm -hmm. oh maybe um we don't talk about the index a lot. The index has the glossary combined, so when you look something up, if it's simple enough that we can just tell you, we don't have to send you to another page. Yeah. So like, you multi-class the index. Yeah, it's multi-classed <laughs> between glossary and index. It's called a gloss dex, in-house in at least. <laughs> um, so I know that doesn't sound super um, like direct, but I was just trying to think of something that we haven't messaged, and so I thought of what is the most obscure thing? <laughs> the back matter. So what are you hoping to learn now? Like it's in the wild, you're here at the con. What are you looking for? What do you what do you want to learn about how it's being received? Well, I I want to I want people to be able to play the game more mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of people have gotten their books early, but I don't know that that many people have been able to play. So I've seen how people receive reading the books. Right. I want to see people coming back after playing the game and, and letting us know like what is awesome and letting us know what they're most interested in seeing next and what, what we should add on. It's like, what's missing? So um, I'm really interested to see that. So we have to get ready for the next panel. When All will right. we next see you? 
Uh, well, I'm on the next panel. The next panel. So yeah, I just ducked back to talk to you guys awesome. for a few minutes, and I will be on the next panel. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining. All right. Me. Yeah. Thank you. And that was part of No Direction's 2019 Gen Con seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. If you'd like to find more great content like this, go to NoDirectionPodcast.com. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making content like this possible. If you'd like to support the network and see that future content is created, you can do so at Patreon.com slash NoDirection. Or click on the Patreon link at NoDirectionPodcast.com.